Dear Father, thank you, Father, for our time together here in this place and with the body gathered, Father. It's, um, it's always a joy, Father, to be together. And we have a heart, Father, that you've given us to want to know you better and to follow you better. And in that same heart, to find others who might do the same. It's infectious what you've given us, Father. The love you've given us, the joy, the desire to be more like you, to experience more of you. It's a joy that cannot be found any other way, and we just have uh, so much desire for others to share it with us, Father. We pray that you would bring us, perhaps others, that we could share the the news of what we have here with others, that there be an infectious quality to our sharing. People would just see in us the joy that we have, and they'd want to be a part of it. And then, as well, Father, there are those days when, despite the joy you've given us, we're wrapped up in the world And we have our concerns and we have our uh, worries. We have our distractions. Father, those are things that get in the way of our walking with you, but also in, in the way of us witnessing for you. For who would want to be a part of what we have here if only they see the world in us? So I ask, Lord, that you would clear the decks. Just take everything on our heart that's between us and you. Just set it aside. Give us a peace we couldn't understand or come to come to understand now or in the future. Just give us that, that freedom so that now we'll hear your word in a new way. And we won't let anything that's in our minds distract us from listening, Father. We just pray for that now. Let us be that witness uh, both here and, and later with what we learn. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, friends, back to studying in chapter 8. We're almost done with this chapter, almost, uh, not quite, but it's a chapter of miracles, and of all the miracles that are recorded in the Bible, I think the ones that probably impress us the most are those that involve Jesus' power over creation. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, parting the Red Sea for Moses, uh, making the sun stand still for Joshua, uh, you know, bringing fire down on a wet sacrifice for Elijah. It's the stuff of movie special effects. And it gets your attention, right? Miracles like that fascinate us, I think, because they break the rules of nature. And to us, that just doesn't even seem possible. Which is why, of course, it's a miracle. And I think those types of miracles are even more impressive than the ones that are probably more theologically important, like raising someone from the dead. I mean, the movies show that happening all the time. But the kind of things God alone does in nature, they really, I think, get our attention. And it's, maybe it's because they're on a different scale. It's on a level that's unimaginable, and it's accomplished by power that we can't even get our minds wrapped around. When you're talking about uh, things like parting an ocean, how can that even happen? Friends, nothing says you're God more than making the physical world obey your voice. So naturally, when you look at what the Lord did in His earthly ministry, Jesus' earthly ministry, it includes His share of, of miracles over the creation. And a few of what Jesus did come to mind immediately. If I ask you to name some, you'd just name basically the same ones. Walking on water, right? That'd be right up there. Uh, multiplying bread and fish. Uh, making all the fish go into Peter's net. Things like that. And then there's the one we're studying tonight. And that is Jesus stilling the storm that comes up on the Sea of Galilee. That miracle opens the next section of Jesus' miracles in the way Matthew has organized them. This group now that we're walking into is loosely organized around a theme of of Jesus' limitless power. Not just over creation, not just over the natural world, but in other ways as well. He's also going to show his power over animals. 
He's going to show his power in the coming judgment. He's going to show his power in his ability to extend forgiveness for sins. These all come under that same category of just his power over everything. And as I've said before, the miracles that we're seeing in in this section, in this whole two-chapter section of Matthew, they all lead to this single theme to understand Jesus as creator God, sole authority, sole power, nothing greater than him. And so this one fits very nicely into that theme. This is where he controls nature. Let's pick up there. It's in chapter 8, verse 23. And we read, he says, When he got into the boat... His disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. You may remember last week when we were at the end of our last section, I mentioned that Jesus said what he said to those disciples while standing in a boat slightly off the shore from the Galilee. He did that because he was being impressed upon by the crowds to such a degree he needed space. So he puts himself out on a boat. And now as he's finished making those comments, he's in the boat already. So they just set off across the Galilee with the disciples in his boat. Now, in the area of the Galilee, people have found ancient fishing boats buried under the mud. They've excavated them. They have them on display in that area, in a place called Guinosaur. And because of that, we have a pretty good idea of the style and the size of the boats that were in use during this time. And I can tell you that generally they're about 30 feet long. They're about 8 feet wide. They're about 4 or 5 feet deep. At their deepest point, that's their draft. They have a flat bottom so that they could get closer into the shore. On either end of the boat, you'd have benches that were sometimes covered in cushions so people could sit or lay down. And they'd have masts or they'd have oars for navigation and propulsion, okay? And more than likely, that's probably the boat Jesus is in or something very similar to that size and that style. Those boats, as I just described, they're not huge. We're not talking about a a major sailing vessel here, but they're large enough to put a eight, ten, maybe a dozen guys in, if you space them around the sides of the boat. But if you do that, you're going to go down in the water quite a bit. It's going to ride low in the water. So the sides of that boat probably weren't more than 12, 18 inches from the surface of the water because it's a flat-bottom boat. All right, so that's the boat they're in. They're moving from a place called Magdala. We said that last week. That was on the northwest corner or so of the Sea of Galilee. And they're moving across from west to east to the opposite end, uh, kind of cutting across the northern tip of the lake to a place called Gerasa. And that trip would probably take maybe two hours if you're rowing, maybe, uh, if you have several guys rowing. It would have been less if you had your sails up and you had the prevailing winds in that direction. So it could have been a little faster. And that track would have taken them relatively close to the shore the whole way. They were probably never more than a mile or so offshore at any point. But the Sea of Galilee is a very deep body of water. Given its size, it's not very big. It's surprisingly deep. And at the point they would have gone, even at the northern tip, they were in water that was at least 80 feet deep. And that's important because the depth of the lake combined with the topography around it. You have high hills, mountains even, that kind of surround the whole of the lake. Because of that feature and the depth of the water, it's possible for the lake to develop very violent patterns from the wind. 
You have high winds sometimes that will race down the mountainsides into the water and push the water very violently, and that will develop a very fast uh, rise of waves. And the depth of the water allows the wave action to get very violent. Even in calm weather, it will get stormy. I've been in Israel enough to to wake up and see the Sea of Galilee uh, many mornings, and as you do, it always starts out the same. It's glassy smooth in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you got desert winds that pick up. And by evening time, there's rolling waves coming into the shore uh, every evening. So even if nothing's going on, it's choppy in the afternoon. But if a storm blows through, if you get really high winds, that little lake can become, uh, think of it like water in a bathtub. Deep, relatively small surface area, get some waves going, and it sloshes around very, very quickly. It doesn't take very long. But by the same token, when the winds stop, it gets calm very quickly because it doesn't have much area for the waves to continue moving. So now, according to Mark, their crossing happens at night. It's at the very end of the day. Evening has come, and he's setting off across in the evening. That's why he sleeps. And as a result, we can guess the water's already a little choppy because of the afternoon weather patterns. But then you get a storm on top of that. All three of the synoptic gospels tell us that this particular storm was unusually strong and developed unusually quickly, even for the Galilee. Matthew says it was a great storm. Mark says it was a fierce gale of wind. Luke confirms the same. So in other words, this is no ordinary thunderstorm. This is maybe a once in a year event, something that is newsworthy to the locals. Matthew says the boat was, you notice in our text, he says it was covered by the waves. Mark says the waves were breaking over the boat. Either way, that's a problem. (laughs) For a boat that's already riding low in the water, it's not going to take a lot of additional weight from that water that goes in the boat to put it down below the surface. Once the very top of the boat gets below the surface of the water, you're done. You're, You're not in the boat anymore, you're in the water. And that's why you see the disciples reacting the way they do. Uh, And and by the way, this group includes several men who were experienced fishermen on this very lake. So they're not exactly new at this. Nonetheless, they're reacting in a way that tells us this is quite serious. They're on the verge of panic. You can imagine them probably barking orders over the sound of the wind to each other on how to keep the, the water out of the boat. They would have been probably bailing water out, probably with little more than their hands, maybe their cloaks, kind of trying to push water up out of the boat. They'd have been trying to steer the boat probably into the waves, whichever direction they were coming, so they wouldn't capsize from one of the waves pushing them over. I mean, it's basically chaos at night, by the way, at night. And then you have the statement at the end of verse 24, which just seems totally out of place. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Now Mark says in his gospel that Jesus has put himself on a cushion at one end, at the stern of the boat. And that's where these benches were built into these boats. He probably thought, I got a two hour ride across the lake, I'll let these guys do the rowing, I'm going to get some shut eye, I'm a little tired. Nevertheless, based on what we know is going on in that moment, he's probably getting a little wet as the waters break over the the boat, he's going to get some of that on him as well. Now, because he's on the bench, he's not sitting down in the bottom of the boat, so he's not having the water that's down there affect him, certainly, but he's still getting wet. And it's probably that aspect of all of this, the noise, the commotion, the water, that makes his situation just seem a little crazy, doesn't it? I mean, if you're thinking, no one can sleep through a storm like this, well, first of all, it tells me that you don't know what it's like to go through war. Because when a soldier is physically exhausted and at his limit, he can sleep anywhere. And anyone who's been in a wartime scenario will tell you this. That person can sleep in rain, they can sleep in wind, sun, cold, 
Doesn't matter. When your body's ready to you know, reach its limit, it just does. I mean, those soldiers will sleep in foxholes while the battle is raging around them, if they're at their limit. So anyone who's reached that limit can sleep. And I think it's probably safe to assume that Jesus was physically exhausted. I'm not trying to make natural explanations for everything here, but I do think that there is an element of just the natural working here to explain what's going on. He's got to be exhausted. He's been walking around for days probably by this point. The crowds are just enormous. They're all over him. And he never had a free moment. I mean, it's not like he goes to the office and clocks in and the crowds are waiting at the reception counter. Remember, he just got through telling us last week he didn't have a home. It's not like he went somewhere, closed the door, put the shutters up, and then everyone stayed away for a while. He's probably sleeping outside in the elements most nights, which is also why he probably can sleep easily in a storm. And I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he had to deal with people waking him up at night, perhaps, seeking healing when there wasn't a big crowd to compete with. I mean, does that seem unreasonable to assume? I'm not saying it happened all the time, but what I am saying is you have to understand two or three hours at the back of a boat where no one's going to bother you for a while, that's pretty precious time for someone in Jesus' situation. So a little wind, a little waves, I mean, come on. He's probably slept in rainstorms before. But then you have the disciples. Poor Jesus. He's just trying to sleep. And then they come and wake him up. And they tell him, we have a storm going on. Have you not noticed? Now, they're fearing for their lives, or so they think, right? They, they feel like, we need to tell Jesus that we're perishing. And then they come to him and they say, we need your help, as if he doesn't care, as if he's not paying attention to the circumstances. And because they have this genuine fear, they don't understand how he can be so placid, how he can be so calm. And, of course, that's the humanity of the moment. But now let's look at what they've actually asked him to do. They say, save us. Now, that's a strange request. And it gets stranger when you consider how they react later to what he actually does. So let's start with the question. What did they think he was going to do? Now you might think, well, they thought he would do a miracle. Well, hold on right there. You might assume a miracle, but when he does the miracle, they're astonished. He can even command the waves, they said. So clearly they didn't expect that. And I would go even a step further. I don't think they expected any kind of supernatural response on his part. I just think they expected the natural response. That is, they wanted to know he cared. They wanted to know he, he sensed their concern. I mean, have you ever been in a panic moment over something that you genuinely feared and there's somebody else who's not panicking? Don't they just irritate you? You know, kind of in that way of like, don't you get it? And you want them to share your concern. Not that that's going to help, but you're just, you're just distracted by the fact that they can remain calm. You, you have to assume in the moment they just don't get it. I think that's an element here. In Mark's gospel, I think we get confirmation of that because in Mark's gospel, he records that they ask Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? And that's really the heart of this. That's the concern. They're upset that Jesus is not up and about, lending a hand in the, in the bailing out of the, of the boat, etc. They perceive his sleeping here as indifference to their plight. And it makes them mad and it makes them hurt. So if the circumstances were so dire... Why was Jesus so calm? Well, our first thought, of course, is to credit his divine perspective. We're all sitting here saying to ourselves, well, of course he could rest. He knew he wasn't going to die. I mean, he knew it wasn't going to end that way. Jesus already knew when he was going to die and how he was going to die. And it wasn't going to be that night. And it wasn't going to be by drowning in the Galilee. So, of course, he could sleep easy. He had no reason to worry. Well, if you look at Jesus' response to his disciples, though, 
I think that leads us to a different conclusion. Because Jesus chastises these men for their fear, calling it evidence of little faith. In effect, Jesus is asking them, why were you so afraid of this storm? So that would tell us that you don't have to be God to know that these things were going to work out okay. I mean, those guys weren't God. They didn't have divine perspective. And yet Jesus turned to them and said they were wrong to fear. It's not as simple as saying that Jesus could sit there calmly because he was God and naturally everyone else would panic. He doesn't give them that option. Now, in most circumstances, it would be illogical for Jesus to say to them, why did you fear this storm? Because under normal circumstances, every one of us who was in that situation would have feared just like they did, and that would have been the legitimate concern. But Jesus says, no, it was unreasonable under their circumstances. So that starts to narrow our understanding down to the point. There's something about that moment that should have caused those men not to fear a situation that otherwise would have been worthy of fear. They were afraid, so we can certainly know that it was fear-worthy. And yet Jesus said they shouldn't have feared. So why not? That's really the point of this moment, isn't it? Why not? Well, he gives the answer in the second half of the statement, sort of. He says, they were men of little faith, or we could say they were men of insufficient faith. But now, friends, whenever you see the word faith in the Bible or otherwise, the first question you have to ask is, faith in what? Faith in what? Remember, faith is a verb, and a verb requires an object. You can't just walk around saying you have faith. People like to do that today, by the way. It's now fashionable to say, I'm a person of faith. That is a meaningless statement. It's absolutely meaningless. Faith in what? Faith in the sun? Faith in yourself? Faith in the lottery? Faith in what? Because if you don't put the object in that sentence, I don't know what you just said. It's a meaningless statement if you don't identify an object. And what I think happens today is people intentionally leave the object off the sentence because it avoids any need to explain yourself or engage in any kind of conversation about what the truth is. As soon as you define the object of your faith, now somebody else can pick that apart, can't they? But if you stay vague, I have faith, well, we can all agree to that. We're all people of faith and we all feel good about ourselves. That doesn't get you to heaven. You have to have faith in something. So the question for us now is, what did they lack faith in? Well, some have concluded they lacked faith in Jesus' word because he had told them that they were going to cross to the other side of the lake. And after all, if the Messiah says you're going to cross to the other side of the lake, well, then you should, by faith, believe that you're going to get to the other side of the lake, right? That's how that argument goes, and I guess that makes some sense. But honestly, I think that's a stretch. I think it's a stretch to expect these guys, in the midst of that moment, to remember that statement and draw a conclusion from it that suddenly, oh, we'll be okay because he said we were going to go to the other side. I mean, that'd be like saying every time somebody says we're going to go on a trip that nothing bad will happen on the way. That's not life for us either. There's no reason for making that connection. In fact, when Matthew uses the term little faith, he always uses it in a very certain context. It's always used in reference to someone who's missing the big picture. Whenever Jesus says, you have little faith, it means you don't see the big picture. And what is the big picture here that they were missing? Well, the big picture, friends, and here's the key. Jesus was in the boat too. And he wasn't worried So, if the Lord is with you, and He's not worried, what do you have to worry about? I think that's the point. If God is with you, and God's not worried, why would you have to be? I mean, the Lord brought this storm 
so that he could teach his disciples an important lesson. And because they weren't responding to that trial with spiritual eyes, because they were operating in their flesh out of fear, they're missing the lesson. He probably would have expected them to do what we now can see would have been the right response, right? They would have taken note of his posture in the midst of the storm, and they would have talked to themselves something like this. They would have said, why is he sleeping? Well, it can't be that he doesn't care for us. We know he cares for us. What else could explain it? Well, maybe he knows this is going to turn out okay. Well, or maybe you could say it's not going to turn out okay, but he knows we're going to be in the kingdom together when we all die, and it doesn't matter that we're not going to be here. It's a win-win either way, but I know if he's not concerned, I probably just don't know something I should know. He knows something I don't know. I'm good with that. So if he's sleeping, we're okay. Instead, what did they assume? They assumed they knew something he didn't know. Because they go to him and they say, don't you realize we're in a storm? Don't you know we're going to perish? They turned it all around. Seriously, do you think Jesus was not aware that there was a storm going on, even asleep? So if he's willing to ride it out, so should they. Their lack of faith was this. It was in not trusting Christ's love for them, regardless of the circumstances. It, it wasn't that they lacked trust in his identity, like, believe in me. That's not the problem. Or even in his ability, because they'd just seen him do miraculous things. I don't think they were surprised with that, necessarily. They thought he didn't care for them. And as such, was willing to allow something to come on them that might cause them to perish. And because they doubted his love, they didn't see the storm with spiritual eyes. They assumed it came to defeat and destroy them, when in reality, it came to test them. They didn't consider that God might have a good purpose in bringing that storm, regardless of how it turned out, right? Regardless of whether it subsided or they died in the flood, whatever that might happen, there was a good purpose in it. That's how your faith in Jesus is supposed to operate. And I could use all the metaphor analogies right now and it would drive you crazy. The storms of our life, right? When the waves are crashing us, I'm not going to do that. But don't assume that when you experience difficulties in life, it means Jesus is uncaring or unwilling to help you out in that moment. What you should do is assume there's some good purpose in it. That gets you through a lot of difficulty in life. Trust me, it's got me through a lot. Having faith in Jesus' good intentions will allow you to face whatever comes your way at peace with the outcome, no matter where it takes you. And ask yourself this, and this is where you really get to see the power of what he was asking of his disciples. Ask yourself this, how much differently would this story have ended if the disciples had seen what he was doing, concluded properly, well, if he's not worried, we don't need to be, and they all laid down and went to sleep with him? Where would we be in the, in the story right now with eight, nine, ten guys laying in the bottom of the boat with Jesus sleeping while a storm was raging around them? Now, if that had happened, we would not have seen Jesus perform the miracle, perhaps. Okay, but as amazing as miracles are, how much more amazing would this story be if it was about men sleeping through a violent storm? What is a bigger miracle? Jesus could sleep that way because of his divine understanding. He knew there was nothing to fear. But the rest of the men could have slept that way too because they were in the same boat as Jesus. That's the key. If you think that sounds impossible, then let me give you another example. You remember Jonah? There was a point in Jonah's story before he meets the fish when he's in a boat and he's in a storm that's so violent that experienced sailors on this boat have thrown everything off the boat they can think of and they've been reduced to praying so they might live through the storm. That's how bad it is. Do you know where Jonah was during the whole storm? He was asleep in the bottom of the boat. Right? And Jonah was not an experienced sailor. 
It's not like he knew, oh, this will blow over. How did he sleep? How could he sleep through those difficult circumstances? Well, I'm here to tell you, he slept for the very same reason Jesus slept in the boat. Because by his faith, he knew he had no reason to fear the outcome of that storm. He knew that whether the storm took his life by sinking that boat, or whether it went away and he was saved, either way, he belonged to the Lord, so he was at peace with that outcome. His faith, in other words, in the Lord's purposes and in his love for the prophet was enough to keep his emotions in check and allow him to remain calm under the circumstances. Now, the real irony about Jonah's story is that he was at peace with dying because he didn't mind the idea of it. Because it would keep him from doing the thing God wanted him to do. We know that. But the point's still the same. He was in the boat with the Lord, as it were. And that trust and that confidence allowed him to set aside his concerns. That's the faith Jesus wants from his disciples. A confidence that says this, if Jesus is okay, I'm okay. You're in the boat with Jesus all the time. I realize you don't see him, and I know that makes a difference for some of us. But ask yourself this, which type of response to life's difficulties will present a better testimony to the unbelieving world? Let's say you face crises in life and you react in fear, or anxiety, or stress, or worry. What are you communicating to the world when you do that? And if, in the case of those moments, Jesus miraculously fixes it for you, maybe even does something supernatural, well, is that what the world's going to remember about that situation in your life when you tell them what happened? Maybe. But won't they just remember that you panic like everyone else does? They'll take note that you acted like they did. You know what the only difference in your situation from their situation is under those circumstances? The only difference is, when everything worked out in the end, you credited Jesus, they don't. That's not much of a difference. If you think that's the difference that makes people believe in your Jesus, no, because there's another guy down the road who's crediting Allah. And another guy who's crediting some pagan god in Hinduism. Now let me give you another scenario. What if, when you face a crisis, you react like Jesus? What if you rest peacefully in the midst of the storm, trusting that whatever's coming is something God has designed for your good, and you can live through it or not, but it'll all be good? All right, well then what will people say? If you set aside your anxiety, if you set aside your complaints against God, if you just trust in His goodness, if you praise Him for the blessing of a trial, which is what James says to do, and it's what Paul did when he was in prison. Well, now, won't that make a lasting impression? Won't they marvel at your faith? And here's the kicker. Do you know what? In that scenario I just described, if God does not save you, if He does not bring the miracle, they will marvel all the more at your faith. In those circumstances. It's a win-win. So what we're learning is the witness of your faith, the test that these trials are intended to produce, is a witness that comes down to your perspective, not the outcome. To your perspective, not how it turns out. The measure of whether or not you survive a test is not whether everything comes together the way you want at the end. It's how you dealt with it. The world isn't nearly as impressed with a healing that God may do as they are when you face sickness without worry. They are not nearly so impressed when the Lord rescues you from the ashes of some disaster, but they'll be amazed when you praise Him for the fire. And they won't look twice when the Lord spares your life in some set of circumstances, but they'll take note about how you face death without fear. And that's what I think Jesus was getting at in this boat. The reactions to trials speak more about our faith than the outcomes of those trials ever do. Which is why he wasn't concerned about the storm. Jesus wasn't. But what was he concerned about? 
He didn't get up and say, oh my goodness, this is a bad one, guys, you're right. No, what was his concern in? He was concerned about their response to the storm. He says they had insufficient faith because they were with him and they should have known that that was enough. And your trust in Christ's love and and good purpose should be enough to get us through trials and use them as opportunities to show our faith. But you don't get there overnight. Look, I'm not trying to tell you because I said these words that tomorrow you're suddenly going to snap into that mindset. I wish it worked that way. It doesn't. But in a growth process as a believer, you'll move there. First, you have to appreciate what your relationship with Jesus says about your life today and about a life to come. By faith, you have to know you already possess something greater than anything that can be found in this world, and that is an eternal life and a kingdom to come. I mean, that has to be the foundation of any conversation about how to face trial. If you are focused only on what this world offers and how Jesus makes this life better, friends, that's a recipe for disaster. You're going to be sorely disappointed before it's all over. On the other hand, if your focus is on the fact that I have an eternal kingdom coming, when everything is there, it'll it'll be great. I'll be fine. I'll have everything I want there. I'll be free from all this there. And it's only what? I probably might live 25, 30 years, maybe. That's not very long. A couple decades, three decades, bam, I'm there. It's done. Right? Hallelujah. Meanwhile, I've got to go through this little thing? Oh, all right. I'll get through it. won't last long. I mean, that's a mindset. It's not Pollyannish. You're not preaching to yourself just to feel better. It's a true mindset that sees everything through the lens of that eternal perspective. Now, obviously, we have emotions. And... You know, I'm not saying that your emotions go away. That's normal to have emotions. Jesus, I don't think he expected his disciples to feel nothing in the face of the trial. I mean, after all, Jesus experienced emotions. He wept at uh, Lazarus' death. He experienced fear and anxiety in the garden at the prospect of his own death. But when it came time to act, what did he do? Well, he acted in keeping with faith in the Father and in the Father's good purposes in those events. He didn't let his emotions take over and dictate how he acted. So he was mourning for Lazarus, but you know what? He still waited three days. He was terrified over the pain of the cross, but he still put himself up there. And that's what I think the standard is. I don't believe Jesus expected his disciples to hide their emotions in the boat. I just think he expected them to act out of faith, that is, out of a knowledge of him. Waking up Jesus and chastising Jesus for not caring about their perishing is not a response driven by faith. It's a response driven by fear. Look, it's always okay to have fear. Jesus says, do not fear, but it's in the sense of action, not in the sense of emotion. You're not a robot. But Jesus says, in those moments, you trust that he's acting in some way for the good of you and for others. And you, in that trust, you're able to move forward despite fear, despite worry, despite concern, or, or anger, or any other emotion that comes on you for these things. That kind of spiritual maturity does not come easily, doesn't come without effort. But that's why you go through trials, by the way. That's what a trial is supposed to do. It's supposed to move you along in that growth process. Whenever you go through a trial and you don't perform well... You let your emotions get the better of you. You panic. You don't pray. You try to fix it yourself in a way that just makes it worse. Am I the only one who's done these things? (laughs) Then you just realize in that moment, what you're realizing is, I still have some work to do. That trial just exposed my weakness. All it did was show you, it's like a test for a student. It shows you what you didn't know. All right, fair enough. When you fail those tests, here's what you're supposed to conclude. Here's what the disciples should have concluded from their experience in the boat. Our faith in Jesus is academic. 
It's still academic. That is, we understand Him in our heads, yes, but we haven't allowed that knowledge of Him to influence how we experience the world. Our faith is genuine. Yeah, we're still going to heaven. I'm not saying anything other than that. But it's impotent. It's immature. It's not living itself out in how we behave. And I think he expected his disciples to bring those feelings that we have and those perceptions that we have about what we don't like in the world, bring those things into alignment with our knowledge of him and of our own future in him and counsel ourselves out of acting according to emotion so that you respond with eyes for eternity. Which is what Paul says at one point in Colossians. He says in Colossians 1.9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be... Listen to the chain of events here. To ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord... Now the next step, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Next step, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. And then finally, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. So he says, be filled with the knowledge of Him. And in this context, we're saying of His goodwill. Know that He has good intentions in trials. Try to understand his ways. And then in that understanding, Paul says, now you can walk in a manner that pleases him. You won't panic in the boat. You'll make a better choice. And then in that, you're strengthened. I'll tell you from my experience, every time I get better at a trial, I feel stronger for the next one. It's just the natural process. You'll be strengthened, he says. But it's not in my own might. It's in his. It's in a resting in him. Paul says, strengthened in his might. Attaining steadfastness, patience, and even joy in the face of trials. You know, you don't get that by talking to yourself, I need to feel better about this trial. (laughs) That's not going to work. But in seeing yourself face it differently, you'll find joy. And then Paul says, The ultimate demonstration of your faith in trial is to give thanks to the Father. You'll know you've arrived when you're in the middle of a trial and you're saying thank you and it's not just words. There's some part of you that's saying, man, I am earning buku eternal reward right now. I don't know how this is going to get me there. I'm not sure why I have to deal with it. But man, as James says, consider it all joy, brethren, when you face various trials, knowing that that testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect work, right? It, It leads you to a perfect state for the coming kingdom. And that's how he ends that little section I read. He says, knowing that the Father will qualify us to share in eternal reward. That's that's not the end-all, be-all. It's not the only thing we want to think about, but that's where it's going. It's going to something better in the future. So to conclude this miracle, we see Jesus stilling the waves after he rebukes his disciples. He stands up. He says, stop. Now, rebuke, the word rebuke in Greek, it literally means muzzle. And that's such a perfect way to remember the word. Because the idea of a rebuke is not just to criticize somebody. A rebuke is intended to silence them. A rebuke is a statement, a rebuff, it's a censure. The idea is that after I speak it to someone, they got nothing more to say. It's muzzling them. Jesus muzzles the storm. And the Bible says the water was perfectly calm. The phrase in Greek, though, is actually great calm. Great calm. And what that language suggests is it goes from a tempest to that glassy sea that you get in the mornings like that. I mean, if they blinked, they missed it. One minute's a storm, one minute's nothing. 
I mean, it's clearly a miracle, obviously. Interestingly, Mark records Jesus asking his question of them a second time at this point. He asks, why are you afraid? And then stills the sea, and then Mark says he asks the question again. I wonder if in the second time he asked it, it sounded a little differently. Why are you afraid? They had no reason to be. And, of course, they saw the miracle. Disciples would have been amazed. I mean, that makes sense. Mark says they're fearful from what they see, but he means it in the sense of awestruck. They ask each other, how can the wind and the sea even obey this guy? What kind of man is he? As I said earlier, they clearly didn't expect this to happen. But they asked Jesus to save them, and he did. Do you see why you remain at peace in trial? Because the Lord has the power to stop a trial in an instant, anytime he wants. As soon as he wants. Some of us take that knowledge and it actually hurts a little bit. You ever been in a trial where you know what I just said is true, and yet it causes you to say, why haven't you stopped it? I know you can, but you haven't. Why? Well, the answer is because there's still a good purpose behind it. That never changed. It doesn't change because you want it to end now versus when it first started. The point is, whatever it's set about doing in your life isn't over till it's over. It hasn't achieved what it's supposed to achieve till God has done that work. And so there's still more spiritual maturity to be developed. You're not ready yet for it to end. There's still more good work to be done. But when the Lord is ready to bring it to an end, He can do it instantly. In fact, He can do it far better than you ever could even think to ask. Do you think they expected that outcome? I think they would have been happy for a life preserver. Right? I think they might have been happy for another boat. He says, we'll just stop the storm. And their response is, can you do that? I didn't know you could do that. (laughs) You know, they never would have thought to ask for that. I love that part about the story because when you ask for relief and the Lord is ready to grant it, He will bring you a kind of peace that does not have an expectation on your side. Like Paul says in Ephesians, right? Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory. That's the bottom line to this story for me. It's not just the fact that he could do the miracle. It's the fact that he went so far above what was needed to solve the problem for them. But first he said, you failed the test. Now there's another side of that that encourages me. Even when we fail the test, he may still come to our rescue. There's going to be another day. There'll be another test maybe. But he doesn't design the tests so that at the end of them, We're vanquished, we're destroyed, we're done. If the lesson's been learned, great. If the lesson hasn't been learned, there still comes a time of relief, generally. But the storm may come back, because whatever you didn't learn the first time, you'll probably get a second shot at it. I like to say, there's an easy way and there's a hard way to learn what God wants us to learn. But the scripture's here so that we can learn the easiest way possible. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you, Father, for teaching us. And thank you for your patience in that process, Father. I pray that you will continue to teach us. I know that sometimes you'll have to teach us through trials that stretch us to our limits. And, Father, we understand from Scripture why that must be the need sometimes. And, Father, when we haven't reacted properly to those trials, we've reacted out of our emotion rather than in a spiritual mindset. Rather than praying, we've complained. Rather than... Seeking for your guidance, we've sought for the world's guidance. 
Rather than waiting it out, we've tried to solve it in our own power. We've done so many things, I'm sure, Father, each of us in our own way, worrying needlessly, chasing after things that had no hope. And all the time you were asleep in the boat with us, so to speak. And we ask, Father, that you would remind us of that in the midst of our trials. That you're there with us. You've put us through it for some good purpose. No matter what it does to us, we have an eternity with you. We just want to pass the test. We want to learn what we're here to learn so that we can serve you better. I hope we are encouraged with this tonight, Father. I hope for those who are struggling in some difficulty of life right now that they'll be encouraged. However much longer it must last, in the end, things will be calm. And in a day to come, we'll be at peace with you eternally. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.